Hi everyone, and I'm very proud to welcome you all to the very first edition of the Big Football Podcast. Um, we're going to be doing something different. We're new, I'm not quite sure what that difference is yet. We're just going to be three friends talking about football, and as if we can't already be different in that aspect, there's only two of us here today. Uh, I'd like to welcome you all to a very good friend of mine, Paul. Hi Dan. Nice to speak to you again, mate. Um, we actually did this, uh, we've just been discussing this prior to the call. We actually did a, a podcast eight years ago, and for whatever reason, we, we, we dropped off. But we're, we're back, and uh, you know, I'm very excited about this, mate. It's been um, an extraordinary season, uh, with the likes of which we'll never see again. It's It's been incredible. Liverpool have ended the 30-year wait for the title. Leeds have ended the 16-year wait to return to the top flight. We had European champions crowned in August and Celtic eliminated from the, the next season's tournament within seven days. Football league clubs have disappeared and almost disappeared and yet the EFL fit and proper owners test is still in existence and worst still, Lee Mason is still a professional referee. Um, Paul, what what a year 2020's been. Um, obviously, we could go into the, the geopolitics a lot, but in terms of football, um, it's easily been the most disrupted season since, um, well, you, you would wager 1939 would probably be the, the last time, obviously, the, the start of the Second World War. Um, and I think, think probably even even longer than that, Dan, because that that season I did have a look at it when when the sort of COVID outbreak first happened. That season was only sort of seven or eight games old when when war was declared, um, and so was kind of just abandoned and, and never thought of again. Which I'm sure is what would have happened quite easily if we were only eight or ten games into a football season when um, when COVID had first come on the horizon. Uh, the problem was obviously that we were we were actually sort of eight or ten games away from end a football season and and there were you know for example just here in England we'd already had a competition conclude in the fact that the League Cup final had already been and gone um you know we had a situation in the in both the Premier League and the the championship at the time um where there were sort of clear runaway um leaders and and both of them as, as you've already alluded to Dan had sort of stories attached to that and I think it made the decisions that had to be taken very very difficult and um I think we should all be grateful that, that in the end some common sense and some clear heads prevailed and I think we got to a situation where obviously less than ideal and not having fans in football grounds is not is not something that I think is sustainable long term um, but we got to a situation where we were able to conclude seasons even if we had to have Champions League final in, in August. Yeah, I mean the, one of the, the biggest fundamental differences to, to 1939 as well is Football is now a multi-billion-pound industry, and the consequences of not finishing the season would have been, I, I think, you, you're talking a huge percentage of of clubs struggling to to make it to the, the next season. Um, just just as I mean, I know you you go to to watch Arsenal a lot. Um, I'm a Liverpool season ticket holder. If someone tells me that the season's voided, I'm wanting my ticket money back for every match I've been to. I'm wanting money back for the petrol I spent getting to the ground. Um, despite the best attempts of, of West Ham and the bottom six at the time, um, the, the the prospect of the season being voided was pretty remote, but it was something that was discussed. And um, to, to particularly Liverpool and Leeds fans, that would have been a highly unpalatable scenario. 
Yeah, and and look, they they kind of really had two options, which was which was kind of to to finish or to try and find some way of um, of mitigating some of what what you're right to to identify would have been sort of legal quagmire uh, had they had to pull the season early. Now I know I know they did that in some countries, and it wasn't a uniform approach across Europe. And we might talk about the fact that UEFA didn't exactly show a leadership role, and um, probably not a huge surprise there in in the way that they dealt with um, the situation. But I think in the end the the conclusions certainly in the Premier League and in the Championship in in England were were sensible. There will be clubs lower down, particularly in League One and League Two, uh, and I know at the bottom of League Two in particular, where you know there are there are livelihoods on the line of of clubs not being in the football league. Um, th- th- there were still some questions to answer there, where those seasons couldn't conclude. And again, it comes down to the sustainability of, of football without fans to a certain extent. And you know, as you've said, I'm, I'm an Arsenal supporter, and my own club have had financial issues and have, have, have had to make employees who you know bear no responsibility for either Arsenal's sort of situation in terms of being out of the Champions League again or the or the Covid crisis that those people have lost their jobs and, and lost their livelihoods um, but Arsenal Football Club can survive for a period of time at least without gate money um, uh, you know that the most of the Premier League is in that position because of the fantastic TV deal. Uh, that's not going to be the position for League One and League Two teams, and how long they can realistically afford to pay footballers when they're getting no money coming in through the gate is is something that, even as we go into now twenty 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 one, is is you know worth keeping an eye on. Yeah, a season that starts on the twelfth of September, which is itself is extraordinary. It's practically a month behind, and and yet the season is going to be finishing at the same time because we have you we have you Euro twenty twenty in twenty twenty one. I can't believe they've not changed the name, but um, that's the the least extraordinary thing you ever have done, arguably over the last few months. Um, if we then go on to, we'll start with the Premier League. We will cover the football league because there's a lot of stories in. In the football league as well, I particularly feel sorry for Coventry's fans not being able to see them ascend back up. Um, they've had a long wait for that. Um, if we return to the Premier League, though, for now, um, obviously I, I've been waiting for the last few, the, the last six months for forever. Um, I, I was five the last time Liverpool won the league, um, and. I've not been able to celebrate it in the, the manner of which I would have liked, but I, I understand, you know, it, the alternative was call the season pretty much mm. or play it behind closed doors. So whilst it was um, strange watching the team lift it on a, a converted cop, um, I, I could not be more delighted with the season Liverpool have had. Um, the only small irritant is that we didn't get the 101 points, cause, and we should have as well given the position we were in, but... Um, I get the feeling that we decided to treat much of the last six or seven games as pre-season for this coming season, although given the start to this season, I'm not uh, entirely sure that's worked out. But um, Well, I think as well, Dan, I, I, and there's a there's a point there that it really is difficult as much as these are professional players and as much as um people will say no you just treat it like any other game once once the the business that you've set out to achieve is achieved it is very difficult to maintain the concentration and the performance levels and i know manchester city did it a couple of years ago when 
they managed to kind of infuse themselves by the hundred points and the hundred goals. Um, but but it, but it's a really really challenging thing to do, and and there was noticeable signs in some of those Liverpool performances. Um, after the the league had been won, that the concentration just wasn't quite as sharp, the intensity just wasn't quite the same. They weren't quite pressing with the same um, the same verve as they had previously, and and that's kind of human nature. It's natural. Um, I, I you know always go back to the fact that when Chelsea first. Um, won the league under Mourinho in, in 05 and they got more points than the Invincibles had the previous year. There was a lot written about, oh, you know, is, is Mourinho's team actually better than the Invincibles? Again, the Invincibles won the league with five games to go and then drew four in a row, which, which was a similar similar thing in the sense that the intensity just wasn't quite the same as it had been when when they were still fighting to, you know, to win the Premier League. And, and it's just natural, it's human nature, but it doesn't take away at all from the season that Liverpool had and the incredible achievement of... Um, of winning the league, but not only of winning the league, of winning 32 out of 38 games, um, which is an, you know, a fantastic feat. And I think what was really impressive, Dan, that, that maybe goes a little bit unnoticed is, um, yes, there were games where Liverpool just blitzkrieg teams and, and you know, killed teams off early in games and won by uh, three or four goals. But I think back to the games like the game at Aston Villa early in the season where they were 1-0 down with two or three minutes to go and they, and they fought back. And, you know, there were a lot of those games early on particularly where maybe they weren't quite at their best. Um, and they found ways to win, and, and that's something that all championship-winning teams have to do, uh, and Liverpool were no different. Yeah, the, the Aston Villa game is something that I've, I've I've said several times. That was the day where I I, I kind of begin began to knew we were going to do it, um, because it, additionally to that, yeah, we were 1-0 down to Villa with three minutes to play, but Man City had come back from a goal down, they scored twice in the last ten minutes as that match was happening, and as the fans are leaving the stadium, I've just got visions of them and and uh, the players thinking, you know, oh, we might have caught some, some ground up on Liverpool here, and suddenly bang, bang, and no no ground has been gained. And of course, that game was important because we played Manchester City at Anfield the week after, mm. and that gap, we could have gone from a, a four point gap to a one point gap with bad results. Instead, it was a seven point gap that went to ten, and we never looked back from that point. But the the it, the what Jurgen Klopp has managed to do with Liverpool is we, we are multifaceted. We can win games in different ways, as as you've rightly said. We can we don't do it as often as as we have done in seasons past, but we are capable of of blowing teams out the water. You know, like the hardest ninety minutes of a team season is, is at Anfield sometimes, but we're also quite good at seeing out those those games where we're not playing too well. You know, we'll we'll win one nil or two one, and we, we we just can break teams down in different ways. Um, I'm a bit worried that we we may need to make some changes for the coming season, but we'll, we'll cover that another time. Um, obviously, we've got one of the best passers of a football in 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 the world. If if I would probably suggest in Alexander Arnold, he can dictate a game not from midfield but from from right back, and um, he gets up and down the line. And we've got Andy Robbo at left back, who, who's not quite as good on the ball, but you know, he, he gets forward. So we we can use our full backs as effectively as any team that's certainly something that Pep Guardiola does at Man City as well He's, he likes to have his full backs get to the byline and pull the ball back it's what um, what was known, formerly known as a, a pro-evolution soccer goal is now known as a Manchester City goal um, 
get pulling the ball back from the byline for a tapping, normally for Raheem Sterling. Um, but I, I think that that's a, a good segue to move on to Manchester City. Actually, um, they only won the League Cup this season. Would anyone other than Pep Guardiola be under pressure? Do you think? Um. Probably not if the somebody else had done what Pep's done, I think, in the previous two years. I, I, I think, no, they would get a little bit of leeway. But I think there's no doubt that there are going to be expectations at Manchester City next year that are very high. Um, they disappointed themselves again, and it disappointed me, actually, in the in the Champions League. I thought that performance against Lyon was almost un- unbelievably bad. Um for a Manchester City team and and I'd actually said right at the start of the season that I thought PSG and Manchester City would be the Champions League final um so I was I was pretty devastated having seen PSG making progress on the other side that 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 City went out with a bit of a whimper against against Lyon they will need to be better in the Premier League I think they will be better in the Premier League um they're undoubtedly going to miss David Silva. I think he is probably the most underrated player in Premier League history. Um, for me, he's he's in the top five or six players that's played in this league since it was formed in 1992. I don't think he gets nearly enough praise. He will be badly missed by Manchester City because he's been an incredible footballer for them. And even this last season where his influence had started to wane, you find that they, they weren't quite as clever around the box in some of those games where they faced, you know, packed defences, whether that was, um, you know, Arsenal in the in the Cup semi-final or whether it was the, the Southampton game that they lost after the restart in the league. And there were other examples earlier in the season as well. So I think um, I think they will have to be better, both in terms of having that, that bit of quality and, and clinical edge around the opposition penalty area. I'm not entirely convinced that Gabriel... Jesus is is an answer at centre forward. If if Sergio Aguero is continuing to pick up these um, these knocks that are becoming all too frequent now, I I think there is cause for concern up front as as a central striker. Um, but the main problems are at the back. There's no question about that. They give away too many soft goals. Um, they've not replaced the leadership of Vincent Kompany. Um, they seem to have lost faith completely with John Stones. And, and obviously Laporte missed a huge chunk of this season. Now, I don't think it's as simple as having Laporte back and fit for 38 games, though, though that will undoubtedly help. I think they need to be better defensively as a unit. I think they've missed, again, I don't think Fernandinho is, has quite been the influence in this, this past season that he has in the past. Uh it was Rodri's first season in English football. He's been signed as the replacement. You have to give him the benefit of a little bit of the doubt. But I think at the moment he's a bit too nice. Um, Fernandinho has made a career out of making the the necessary cynical foul. And I think, um, I think at times this season Manchester City lacked that. So where in the past a player who was about to start running at their defence would have been um, pulled back and, and, and it would have been a free kick. Uh, I think too often those runs were allowed to go unchecked. They will have to improve defensively. I, I think Nathan Ake is a, a good Premier League player. I'm not convinced he's necessarily the missing piece. Um, so there is still a question at centre-half. But I think from the, the season past, the... The thing that stands out about Manchester City is the number of games that they should have won that they didn't. And that that's games like the early season game at Norwich, which was a crazy game. It's games like the Southampton game I've already referenced. It's the game that they lost at Tottenham, which was frankly 
too bonkers to be believed where they had multitude of chances missed a penalty and then suddenly you know got got caught and I think ended up down to 10 men as well Manchester City lost too many of those games and they can't lose the next season I, I think different from Liverpool Man City didn't win all the games when they played well and they struggled to win any games where they weren't quite at their best and, and that will have to change yeah I mean obviously Man City are a very very good team and they, they will keep Liverpool honest um, I expect them to do more more transfer business than us not I'm not being funny but I, I just do I just think they will will spend more money they will sign more players um, so far though so quiet really I mean Ake is um, again I like him I think he's a good Premier League player um, but do, does his signing make me worried that they're going to um, close the gap they will close the gap there's no way Liverpool are getting 99 points next season because I don't think anybody will I think there's been too much improvement around so like e- even with no money being spent you know I, I do think that the gap will be smaller next season but the, the problem Man City have for me is they have a bit of a glass jaw um, it seems a lot easier than it has been in the past to to land a punch from which they don't recover. Um, I mean, I'm not saying he's he's a particularly big problem, but every time City are under pressure for a sustained period of time, the goalkeeper does something crazy, and that was the the case in the Leon game. Yeah. Um, as we've mentioned recently, you know, like Leon, um, had a, a spell after Manchester City equalised, and they came away with two goals. Um, the the goalkeeper is is there to be got at and it's not just him obviously it's what goes on in front of him as well um, f- for me it, it does seem too too easy to land that punch on City but of course if everything clicks for them at the other end you're in serious trouble it's just a case of can you put them under pressure is your game plan to put them under pressure because a lot of teams do go to the Etihad and decide right, well well, that's that we'll, we'll take our 4-0 loss and that's all there is to it they don't, they don't try and put any any pressure on and it seems to me that teams that do try and put pressure on get places with Manchester City like, like Norwich who went on to have a pretty disastrous season all in um, in, in that game that you mentioned in, was it September I think it was yeah I think it was right yeah, at the um, start yeah. they, they landed a few punches and came away with some goals and, and that's what you need to do to Man City but I do understand why teams just just take the medicine was there anyone else in the title race um we, we could mention Leicester briefly, but they finished fifth in the end. Um, they, they they really did fall off a cliff, but until probably Boxing Day, they were were right in in the hunt. Yeah, that they they had a really good first half of the season, Leicester. I think in the end that that little bit lack of squad depth cost them. I think um, they don't really have the options to change it in the way that Liverpool and Manchester City do to bring in fresh players who are of the same level as the players they're replacing. They are, and it's been said numerous times, incredibly reliant on Jamie Vardy to score goals. And when he had a little trot where he was struggling to score for three or four games, um, Leicester struggled as a team to to find um, to find enough goals. Yeah, Leicester were overhauled eventually by um, both Manchester United and Chelsea. So if we look at United, who incredibly really managed, it feels incredible that they managed to finish third. Um, but the the run of form from probably February onwards saw them finish. I mean, they, they 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 were in control on the last day of the season, and yeah, you do have to look at Leicester's collapse. But Chelsea had a bit of one as well. Um, Cam, who is our our, our third member, um, can't join us today. He's, he's he's 
um, got a bank holiday celebrations. Um, I'm sure he's pretty pleased at the the whole third thing. Not necessarily finishing third, but of course the Champions League looked a long way off when they were beaten two nil at home by by Burnley in January. Yeah, I think they're a real uh, case in point. It's a long time since I've seen a player come in mid-season and change a team's fortunes as much as Bruno did at Manchester United. He's um, a very, very classy individual. And, and again, he's one of these players who's worth three goals because his set pieces are so good. Both his, his strikes at goal from, from free kicks, but also his delivery into the penalty area. Um, he's going to be worth goals to teams um, in those set-piece situations. I think I think Manchester United are not in a bad place going forward, but I, I still think they're the when I look at their team I struggle. Bruno is probably the one to come up with genuine sort of top class, world class performers. I think they've got a lot of very good players. Um I think in order for them to really think about closing the gap to, to being in a title race, they need more great players and I don't think they've got um, enough yet that, that really fall into that, that real, real top-class category. They've got a lot of people. I'm a big Rashford fan. I think he's an excellent player. Martial, when he's on his day, albeit he's, he's a little inconsistent. But but I think you know getting more consistent top performances out of those people is key. To, to finish third was was a, probably a decent season in the end, as you say, considering where they were. Chelsea, I think when you look at... Um, you know, losing Eden Hazard before before the season and not being able to buy anybody and having to, you know, rely to a large extent on some of their younger players, the likes of Abraham and, and obviously Mason Mount had a very good season for them. Um, and also at, at the back where, where Rhys James um, had an impact and, and Tamori played some games, then, then Chelsea can be relatively satisfied with with the outcome of their season. And we'll, we'll talk another time about what's next for Chelsea because I think the expectations have obviously changed given, given what they've spent in the transfer market. But I think just looking at the season just gone, I didn't think Chelsea would make the top four. And so I think even though they sort of stuttered across the line a little bit at the end, I, I think that's a reasonable effort from, from them. Yeah, I mean, Chelsea's goal was probably to... Um to get into the top four, if possible. Um, obviously, quite an inexperienced manager in Lampard. Um, and they, they set up to play to play decent football. What I look at at Chelsea, though, is, and this is not going to be an easy problem for them to fix, because good goalkeepers don't grow on trees, um, but they do not have a good goalkeeper. Um, I'm not heightest a good goalkeeper is a good goalkeeper, but Kepper is too small, um, and that's why he regularly gets beaten from 30 yards. Um, yeah, I think I think they I do think they do need a new goalkeeper. They struggle for a goalkeeper. I think defensively they weren't good enough. Um, you know, uh, uh, maybe I'm sensitive to it as an Arsenal fan. A lot is quite rightly said about Arsenal's defending, which is not great. Arsenal had the second worst defensive record in the top eight. The worst defensive record in the top eight, six goals worse than Arsenal's, was Chelsea's. Yeah, they um, ship a lot of goals. And and you, I think part of that is their defenders aren't good enough individually um, and the goalkeeper position has been a problem for them but I think part of it as well is the way they set up they set up to be very open to be very front-footed um, and maybe the next stage in their development is to learn that at times you're going to have to shut up shop a little bit um, and kind of play a little bit more reserved in, in certain situations I, I think the the, the, the the bonkers game at Anfield that finished 5-3 um, just before the end of the season 
was a perfect illustration of Chelsea's problems because they scored three good. I mean, Pulisic came off the bench and, and really put us on the back foot. Um, but they were four one down at that point. Um, and yeah, I, I just look at the goalkeeper and think, put the ball on him from corners. And if you've got someone who's good at shooting from long range, have a go because he he, he does regularly seem to get beat from from thirty yards. But as you say. It's it's a unit problem. It's not just one any one player. It's a unit problem. But the the goalkeeper is particularly susceptible. I I think. Yeah, he's. I I, I didn't think he was worth the money they paid when they signed him, and I, I I've not changed my mind. No, I I think the I, from from what I understand, um, Chelsea's first choice was Allison, but um, we stopped trying to be clever and just paid the money out for Allison um, after Loris Carrier started making mistakes in pre-season games. Um, we just got, got on with it, and that left them, them not getting their first choice, and they, they paid. Well, it was was it seventy five million for Kepa? I think it's seven seventy two. I think yeah, it was a lot of money. Too way too much. Mm. Um, they have been linked with our black. Um, anyone who negotiates with Atletico Madrid needs to to um, be switched on. If we then switch our focus towards the bottom end of the table. Um, we'll come to the best of the rest later on. Um, I, I thought when the season restarted, Norwich would look at their fixtures and think, we, we have a chance here, you know, we, we, we play teams around us, we have a chance. Um, they normally carry a goal-scoring threat, but um, Norwich were absolutely dreadful when the season restarted and in the end were relegated with, um, with change to spur. Yeah, I, I feel a little bit for Norwich. I actually, I, I do a sort of annual predictions competition and I was the only person the year that Norwich won the championship who even had them predicted in the top six. I think I had them predicted to come third um, and obviously they went and won the championship and, and it was a surprise to a lot of people. I don't think many people expected Norwich to come up. They're almost a classic case if they came up without really being ready to come up. Um, I think they probably knew they were they were going to face a season long battle. They've got some some decent young players. Obviously, the young left back who, who your club tried to tried to buy Dan before before the price got got a little um, a, a little ridiculous. Um, Jamal Lewis, I think, is a good player. I think Max Aaron's the young right back is a really good player. They are modern Premier League fullbacks. They get up and down. They're athletic. They're quick. They can cross the ball. Um, I think. Uh, Obviously, Cantwell's had a terrific season, and and you know there'll be one or two Premier League clubs. I would have thought having a look at him and thinking about whether whether he could improve their side. Um, but too many of the positions uh, on the on the field, it felt like Norwich had kind of journeyman people who weren't really good enough and, and won't necessarily um, benefit from the experience. That they don't look to me like a side that's necessarily going to bounce straight back. And I, I might be wrong about that. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Norwich. I think it's just that their kit is so different. <laughs> that sort of yellow and green is just something you don't you don't see a lot. Um they bring a bit of colour to the Premier League. Uh but I uh, yeah, I think it was probably inevitable that they would go and um while they have some good young players, I think there's some some question marks there as well. I think in terms of the other two, um I don't think too many people, while a lot of people would have thought that Norwich would go, I don't think too many people would have started the season saying Watford and Bournemouth would be the others. Um, and I think in both cases, there's there's a bit of a story of mismanagement to, to tell. And, and um, you know, at Watford, 
finally it caught up with them changing manager every three weeks and, <laughs> and uh, not really seeming to have a lot of consistency in their in their recruitment policy. Um, I think their recruitment policy when they first came into the Premier League was really good and I think it's it's slowly sort of deteriorated the, the, the longer they've been here. Um, and Bournemouth, I think, um, you know, that they, they, their better players struggled to make an impact on the season. They suffered some injuries. But again, and I'm a, an Eddie Howe fan, I think you have to look at the recruitment at Bournemouth the last two or three seasons. And a lot of money has been spent without bringing in people who made the team better, for the most part. Um you know, yes, Ake came in and, and obviously they've sold him on for big money. David Brooks, who missed a lot of the season, is a, is a really good young player and, and I think they definitely did miss him. But if you think about Eddie Howe's recruitment again, when, when Bournemouth first came into the Premier League or just before and he was finding the Josh Kings and the Callum Wilsons and the, um, you know, the, the Ryan Frasers of this world, and, 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 you know, reviving Junior Stanislas's career and bringing these people in for pittance and turning them into really valuable assets. Um, and then you look at what they've done in the last few years and, you know, I mean, they've they've helped Liverpool win the league because they've kept giving you a load of money for some of your average sport players. <laughs> Brad Smith <laughs> and Jordan Ibe. Yeah, yeah, and, and Solanke as well. I mean, Solanke's been an absolute disaster there. Uh, I think, you know, ultimately... If you recruit badly in the Premier League, eventually it catches up with you. And I, I fear for both Watford and Bournemouth. Um, you know, it's long-term strategy more than just performance over the course of 38 games that's that's caught up with them. I mean, I, I look at Bournemouth, and there's someone I, I always like playing Bournemouth because we keep beating them because they try and play football. They don't just sit in and you know, like try and, and and grab a nil-nil. They, they try and play football. Which of course is absolutely perfect for um, when you're playing, the, you know, like the, the likes of Liverpool and um, and whatnot. So I always look forward to Bournemouth games, and I'm, I'm I, I do think the league will be a poorer place for them being out of it. But I mean, they went to Everton and won pretty easily on the last day of the season. Um, yeah, they finally found some form, didn't they? Right at the end, when it was almost too late, they they won a couple of games. They played really well at Manchester City that night when I thought they were probably value for a point and I think they lost 2-1. But the last 10 minutes had City really on the ropes and just couldn't quite force an equaliser. And it just felt like it was too little too late for them ultimately. And um, I think they will be frustrated with themselves because I think if you look around the squad at Bournemouth, there was enough good players to stay in the Premier League. And so they'll be very, very disappointed that they haven't managed to do that. Yeah, the, 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 you look at this, the start of the season. Yeah, I, I know they had injuries, as, you, as you've rightly said. You, you didn't look at that and think, oh, well, Bournemouth are going to struggle this season. You thought Bournemouth will be possibly lower mid-table, possibly yeah. upper mid-table, depending on, on what happens. But yeah, um, as, as you say, some some pretty poor recruitment has finally caught up with with them. And with regards to Watford, I, I, I just don't understand... <laughs> What what and this is no disrespect to him. What can Hayden Mullins bring for two games that Nigel Pearson couldn't? Well, indeed, Dan. I think you know. Look, it is true that the Pearson bounce had kind of worn off, um, and uh, you know that that is is a fair comment from from Watford's part. But to then to, to get rid of Nigel Pearson and thrust poor old Hayden Mullins, who was you know the youth team coach, into can you get as 
some points from, I think they play Manchester City and Arsenal. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, we, we need a win to stay in the Premier League, Hayden. There you go. Good luck. I, I, I just thought it was strange planning. Um, but again, I think, you know, you have to look at more than just the decision to replace Nigel Pearson. You have to look at the decision to replace Javi Gracia, who had done a really good job the year before, got them to a cup final. Yes, they had a poor start. But they rushed to, to, to move him on. They went back to Kike Sanchez-Flores. That worked well for them the first time. Not so well this time. Um, you, you can't have four or five managers in the Premier League season and expect to stay in the league. No, it, it, it's, it reminded me of that Paddy's Power advert where they um, had a manager being sacked at half-time just like going through a revolving door, coming out with a new manager. Um that's certainly how it feels at Watford sometimes, and and they've paid for it. You, you you're right. Um, that that's not a sustainable model. Um, for those who who stayed up, um, Aston Villa had a, a close squeak. I I think that they they hit form at just the right time. They played quite well in the game at Anfield, um, but didn't take the. They had a few chances on the break and didn't take them. Um, Jack Grealish um, really stood up to the plate for them. Uh, captain. It's his his team. Um, do you think Villa should be pleased at, at just squeaking? Yeah, I, I I didn't love their strategy right from the start of the season. They they followed what seemed to me to be the flawed Fulham model from the year before, which was win the playoffs and then bring in you know twelve different players. Um, but I think they did just find a settled system and a settled squad at the right time. They were a team that probably were helped by the, the shutdown. Um, I felt that when the games restarted, Villa looked more solid defensively. I think that was the big thing. They obviously had the very lucky break in the Sheffield United game, um, <laughs> which, you know, somebody will, will want to look at and consider the long-term implications of that. Um, but I think... Ultimately, they, they did just stand up enough at the end of the season and, and deserved, I think, of the, the teams down there just to, just to squeak to be safe. They, um, they're a big club, Aston Villa. It's, it's good to have them in the Premier League. 17th was probably just about OK for the first year back. But I think going forward, they'll want to be pushing up towards the middle of the table. Yeah, I mean, I, you know what? I really like Dean Smith. He seems like a really decent fella. Um... And I, I was I was pretty happy for him in the end. Um, you know, I'm neither here nor there about Aston Villa personally, but yeah, they are a, a big club. Um, Brighton and West Ham finished um, just above, although Brighton in the end stayed up pretty comfortably. Um, Brighton, Brighton took um, a, a real shine into the manager and gave him a, six, a new six-year co- contract, um, Graham Potter, only for them to to really have a terrible run of form and they were in big trouble at one point. Um, West Ham went back to David Moyes and in the end it worked out for them again. At one point it looked as though they may be going down. Um, do, do you think that's about par for Brighton? I, would, I don't think anyone would argue that West Ham has achieved. No, I, it is about par for Brighton. I think they're a club I look at for next season and think, are they the Bournemouth where it's just going to eventually catch up with them? Um West Ham, I think, would have gone down had they not made the change to David Moyes. I think he did a really good job keeping them up the first time. Um, the West Ham 
ownership has big ideas and Pellegrini was more of a name and more exciting um, but his teams lacked structure they lacked coherence they obviously suffered massively as well you have to say when Lucas Fabianski was out he has been consistently one of West Ham's best players and when he missed games and they, they had that Spanish guy who they've they've just released and whose name escapes me in goal and he was an absolute disaster. Oh, he was a terrible um, goalkeeper. And then I think Alvin Martin's son played a couple of games, didn't he? And he must be about 40 by this point in his career. Um, so, you know, I, it was an underachievement for West Ham. It's about par for Brighton. Um, if Brighton finished 15th again next year, they'd snap your hand off. I, I mean, Graham Potter, uh, I remember him, I grew up in Stoke-on-Trent. I remember him as a, as a bang average left back for Stoke City in the mid-90s um, Potter for the Potters uh, and then obviously he, he also came to um, the Emirates a couple of years ago and beat us with his Swedish part-time team um, so he's somebody whose career I've kind of had a, a bit of an eye on from afar uh, he obviously wants to change the way that Brighton play I saw them at Newcastle I think in, in Chris Hewton's last season and, and my goodness it was one of the most dire games of football I've ever had the <laughs> misfortune to witness and um, they clearly are trying to be a bit more of an expansive football team and, and to get it down and pass it and be a bit more creative I just don't know at the moment if they've got the right mix of players to make that style successful ultimately uh, Roberto was the goalkeeper at West Ham that, that's right Roberto oh, that's his name dreadful he, he was making mistakes on a weekly basis. Um, again, um, kudos to Brighton. They try and play football the right way. Um, they, they gave us a couple of good games. Uh, they, they were really hard-fought wins over Brighton on both occasions. Um, who do you think uh, overachieved, Paul? I, I think there's a couple of candidates there. One, one, one manager I would like to give um, kudos to is Steve Bruce. Um, he came into Newcastle after uh, Rafa had gone and obviously Rafa was very popular with the Newcastle fans and um, th- there was a feeling that you know he, he was a bit of a, a Mike Ashley mouthpiece but um, I-, I think Steve Bruce deserves a lot of credit for the job he's done with Newcastle. Yeah, so you know he had a very Rafa-like season in the end for Newcastle essentially which was that they... Uh, they weren't the most entertaining in the world. They struggled to score goals, but they got good value for their goals. And that was always the same with Rafa's teams. Newcastle scored 38 goals in 38 games. Um, they they managed to get 44 points. Uh, you know, the, the, the sort of production they get for their goals is very high. Um, I think Steve Bruce did do a good job because it, it wasn't a nice situation he stepped into. It's obviously the job Steve Bruce has always wanted. I think that's pretty fair to say he's from that part of the world um he you know he understands i think the the importance of that football club to its area and it is more important to its area than than a lot of football clubs um and and to the people of 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 newcastle it's it it's a hugely important part of their their lives um they i think probably slightly overachieved or or about par for the the players they have um but i think that at times steve bruce in his career has got a bit of a a bum reputation as as being a a guy who kind of only does relegation scraps and actually his record when his teams get into relegation scraps is not that great he he generally gets relegated um what he's actually quite good at is keeping teams just just above that morass 
of of mess at the bottom of the league and he did that very successfully at Wigan for a number of years. He did it at Sunderland for a couple of seasons. He's he, you know he, he's obviously done it again at Newcastle. I think the other big overachievers we've already touched a little bit on Leicester but but both Sheffield United and, and Wolves I think I think because Wolves finished 7th the previous season as well they've almost gone a bit under the radar. It, no one should think it's kind of normal for Wolves to keep finishing top seven in the Premier League. These are some of the best seasons Wolves have had in 50, 60 years. Um, and Nuno Santos has done has done a terrific job there. Um, so I think they deserve some credit. The Wolves' problem, if anything, is they, they don't know when to stick and when to twist. I think they draw games that they have the ability to win because they aren't quite willing at times to just gamble losing to try and win a game. Um, Sheffield United obviously first season up and, and again I think they only scored 39 goals so to finish ninth in the Premier League and and have won 14 games when you've only scored 39 times is is a real achievement Chris Wilder's been a very very good manager in the lower leagues for a long time I think anyone who's followed his career isn't surprised he's ended up as a Premier League manager what a superb um, job he's done he's done an incredible job and they play a really interesting way it's not necessarily the purest of football but equally it it's not defensive and boring they're quite attacking in a strange way for a team that only scored 39 times they use their wing backs and they push them on and they you know they're not afraid to hit the diagonal ball and um and i think they they've got a style they really believe in they don't change it too much they're not one of these teams who come up and say, well, we play Manchester City, we play with nine behind the ball. No, they, they try and play their system every week and they believe in their system. Um, and it, it certainly worked for them last season. It was an incredible achievement. Yeah, really, really impressed with Sheffield United. Every time I, I, I saw them, um, it, even if they're not necessarily playing well, they'll give you 150%. Um, and I, I, I was... Um, very impressed with them whenever I saw them, and same goes for Wolves as well. I think I think Wolves are a, a really good team to watch. I think the problem they have now is trying to keep this team together. Um, obviously, Matt Doherty has already um, yeah. left for Spurs. You know, like, they 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 do have money to spend. It seems um, some strange transfers really um, when you think about it. And they have a goalkeeper who wears number eleven as well. That's not acceptable. <laughs> um, if we then move on to the underachievers, um, it's it's easy for me to say this, but um, Everton really need to decide on who the manager is going to be. They keep changing managers, and they keep spending money, and then eighteen months later, they sack the manager. Um, I, I I don't think I think it's a lot more difficult to sack Carlo Ancelotti than it is Ronald Koeman or Marco Silva or Sam Allardyce, but. Um, is, is you mean he, you mean Barcelona manager Ronald Koeman? Yes, that that man. Yes, <laughs> uh, well, although like AS have already started to blame him for the Lionel Messi situation, so that could <laughs> that could not that, that could be a, a moot point. Um, so yeah, I think look when you look at the underachievers, I think there's three really obvious ones. There's 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 West Ham we've already touched on. There's Everton you've already alluded to, Dan, and the, and there's my team Arsenal as well, and and possibly albeit they finished sixth, I think Tottenham a little bit as well. I thought Tottenham were going were gonna to be a top four team again, coming off, you know, the run of seasons they've had under under Pochettino and, and then to to end up in the mess where they had to move on and, and appointing Jose and sort of at times in the second half of the season winning games without really ever looking like they had a sort of 
ethos and a style of play and an, a, and an, a clear idea of the team they wanted to be. Um, but equally, if you'd offered them sixth when Jose was appointed, they'd have snapped your hand off. So, um, it, you know, from from one perspective, potentially underachieved, but, but equally ended up in a reasonable position. I think Arsenal... Um, you know, extremely messy season, the messy season we've had since since 1995. And I think it's our lowest finish since that season as well. Um, you know, when you have three different, again, I talked about Watford having four managers. There were three different managers at Arsenal, if you include the sort of four or five games that, that Freddie Jumberg was in charge. Um, I, it was evident to me pretty early this season that, that there was something not right with... Um, the camp in terms of Unai Emery's final days there. I think the lack of his ability to speak English properly really, really hurt him. I think the communication in the dressing room was somewhat lacking. I don't think he ever was able to communicate clearly his ideas on football to his players. Um, And they played as though they didn't really fully understand what they were being asked to do. Uh, Very, very disjointed. Things did pick up a little bit with Arteta, but equally... Well, he rightly has had a lot of plaudits for the the FA Cup win um, and for the fact that at the end of the season, you know, we managed to to beat Liverpool and, you know, won the Community Shield again the other day. Uh, There were still some performances against some of the lower teams that that weren't where they need to be in terms of, you know, Arsenal should be dominating certain games against sides where where we should be controlling the ball in the way that we maybe are used to and and haven't been able to for the last couple of years. So there's still a lot of work to do there. I think when it comes to Everton, I I really worry about where they are and what their direction is. Um, Again, we'll talk more about expectations for the next season, but I would not be particularly optimistic if I'm an Everton fan. Um, Again, I think their squad is a disjointed mismatch of five different managers' worth of players or four different managers' worth of players. If you go back through the names you've reeled off, Martinez and then Koeman and then Silva, Sam Allardyce now Ancelotti there's a, there's a lot of managers who've had a hand in trying to put this squad together they're supposed to have a director of football who oversees that long-term transfer strategy well I mean he really shouldn't still be in a job because th- there doesn't seem to be any long-term transfer strategy as far as I can see um that yeah I, I don't know what I don't know if Carlo Ancelotti can play the system he wants to play with the players that he has available to him um so their season was disappointing, um, but I think there's there's a lot of work to do there. And as we've said, West Ham, I think they'd have gone down if they didn't appoint David Moyes, um, or at least if they'd stuck with Pellegrini, uh, they'd they'd have gone down. Um, they they seem to have finally decided that they're going to give Moyes a proper crack at the job. That's a different pressure for him now. It's one thing being a firefighter. It's another thing when the job is your job and you've got to craft and, and construct a squad that can be competitive in the in the top 10, top 12 of the Premier League, which will be West Ham's expectation for next season. So um, I, I don't think it's easy for any of those three clubs to turn the ship around immediately and, and be back where they want to be. I think for Arsenal, that would mean top four. I think that's a big ask for them next season. I think Everton, it would mean top seven or eight, I think that's a big ask for them. And I think for West Ham, it didn't mean top half. And again, um, that isn't going to be easy. So all three of them underachieved, but they underachieved for for reasons of kind of fundamental structure of their playing squad. 
I think the, the one the one that I want to touch on the most there um, is Tottenham. We, like they gave us a really difficult time whenever we played them the, the, the season previous, and obviously we 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 beat them in Madrid, but it was not an easy game, and there, there was constant talk of unhappiness in the camp for the for, for until Pochettino did get sacked. It's almost as though he's taken them as far as he could. Um, but do you think Mourinho's the right fit? Given, I mean, I'm, I'm not um, commenting on Mourinho's coaching because he's, he's clearly had results. But um, is, is he the right fit for a job where money is not going to be forthcoming? It seems it seems as though Tottenham are not uh, going to be dipping into the transfer market too much. No, it's it's a strange fit for Jose, I think, as well. Uh, you know. There is still, and I, I live among Spurs fans, and there is still an expectation from Tottenham fans of a certain way of, of playing and approaching the game. I think Pochettino did an incredible job there, and I know he didn't quite get over the line to win a trophy. Um, I think the writing was on the wall the back half of last season when their form really tailed off in the league. Uh, I think Pochettino knew that and led to believe that he thought he had an agreement with Daniel Levy that he was going to be able to do some some major surgery to the squad at the end of last season. Not necessarily spending huge amounts of money when, when you looked at net spend, but he was going to be allowed to, to ship seven or eight out and bring a new sort of six or seven in. And that didn't happen. Um, some of the changes were quite limited. They, they bought the midfield player from, from Leon, whose name I can't pronounce, um, who, who didn't quite, you know, didn't quite, do what they, they hoped he'd do. And, you know, is Jose the right man? Time will tell. As I say, if we're looking just back at the season gone, he, he got the results that he needed to get to get them into a European place. And that was the challenge when he arrived. So um, he, he will look at that as a reasonable success. Uh, again, it's a different, a bit like we've just said with David Moyes, it's a different job when you're no longer someone who's just firefighting a difficult situation. But when you're now the person in charge and you've got to have a vision for how to take the club forward. Um, Long-term visions, as as we know, Dan, have never particularly been Jose's thing. So um, it will be interesting to see what the next next season brings for Tottenham. Not after that third year, anyway. Um, We still love you, um, Burnley fans, Southampton fans, Crystal Palace fans. Um, Just just to touch on those teams, so we've, we've talked about everybody. Um, Burnley at one at one point looked like they may um, sneak into Europe, but had a, a, they tailed off a bit um, in places, and it cost them in the end. Um, Southampton, f- for my money, had a really good season. It it comes to something where you lose a game nine nil at home, and you still finish obviously just in the lower half of the table, but. Um, I think the Southampton board deserve a lot of credit for not swinging the axe. And I know we were talking about this just be- before we started to record. Um, Ralph Hasenhusel, um deserves a lot of credit for sticking around and making them a very difficult team to play against. Yeah, I, I was saying to you, Dan, I saw him at the Emirates and it was right at the end of the, of the Unai Emery era and Arsenal were a bit of a mess, but Southampton were really impressive. I think they were better away from home than at home last year. They they set up almost with the players they have to play on the counter-attack. Um, but I, I was impressed with the season they had. They're an entertaining team to watch, actually. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I... I I was surprised they started as badly as they did, but I was also surprised, as you've just said, that they didn't panic when the, the Leicester result came. 
and in the end they were they were rewarded for for a bit of patience yeah and it would have been the easy thing to do as well um last but no by no means these crystal palace i i think the season coming ahead again we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this in more detail there's a big one for palace um, because they need to to make a lot of changes they've got they didn't have the oldest squad in the league did i, I read me they've certainly got the oldest manager well, um, well. Um, they've got the oldest manager. They've got an old squad. They kind of need to make a decision now, Crystal Palace, as to whether they're sticking or twisting because um, there will come a point very soon when they will need to do quite a bit of surgery to that team. My personal opinion, and it's not because I was, I'm an Arsenal fan and I thought they should have sold him to us, but I thought they should have cashed in on Wilfred Zaha last summer. I thought that would have been the right thing to do and then use those funds to sort of reinvest in two or three players. Um having not made that decision and probably seen his value drop after after last season, they're in a little bit of a, of a tricky position. I don't think there's a huge amount of money sloshing about there, Dan. And I think part of the problem, again, is they, their wage bill is extremely high. They're another team who've helped out Liverpool's title-winning um, aims by, by paying money for Sacco and, and Benteke. Presumably, they've never seen them play. Um, <laughs> Benteke certainly hasn't done much playing since he's been there. Uh <laughs> But I, I, yeah, I think I think look the season they just had, yeah, okay, it was sort of middle of the road, it was fine. Um, but I, I do again, they don't score enough goals. No, they, they do look short of goals. I mean, the, the thing, the thing with Zaha as well as um, Palace may have thought, oh, we'll get more for him next summer, and of course, um, COVID nineteen has has seen that. But also his form. Uh, yes, COVID plays a part in that, Dan, but also his form. He did not have as good a season just gone as the one previous where he legitimately was one of the you know, one of the most exciting attacking players in the Premier League. You can't say that about the season just gone. No, yeah, that's true. I mean, for fair player to Palace, they always find a way to stay on. You know, obviously I've got history with Roy Hodgson, not not all of it good to say the least. Um but yeah, what what a job he continues to do there on, on one of the, the the lower budgets in the in the league in in reality, but uh, when we're not talking about Christian Benteke or uh, or Sarko, um thank you for spending that money. It was appreciated. <laughs> um, one one thing I'd like to to cover um before just before we wrap up and we'll, we'll do well to keep this short. Um, we can't talk about um the two thousand nineteen two thousand and twenty season without mentioning VAR. <laughs> Um, for the match going fan, it, it's confusing. But how do you feel about it in general? I know we've talked about it in in passing, but I don't think we've actually had a, a proper conversation about um, how Stockley Park's finest work. Uh, what what do you think? Yeah, I think I think it's been applied slightly inconsistently. I think it started well at the beginning of the season. They had some pretty strict guidelines and were applying them relatively consistently. And I think there was then a lot of moaning, as there always is, um, when when things feel maybe a little bit as though there isn't much flexibility. A lot of people complained and said, where's the common sense? And then it almost looked to me as though the, the people watching the screens at Stockley Park started to try and apply their common sense. And as we know, when referees apply common sense, it's never very common. Um, and, <laughs> More and, sense. And, and, and rarely is it sensible. So um, I think it was applied a little bit inconsistently, particularly with the reviewing of of when to upgrade and downgrade red cards. I thought they got into a bit of a mess on that. Um, the penalty decisions, 
you know, it's the same as when the referee gives penalty in games. There are going to be some that, that seem soft. There are going to be some that seem um, as though they should be awarded and aren't. I, I do generally agree with the principle that they should try and stick with the referee's view on a penalty decision unless he's obviously got it wrong. Um, but, you know, that Manchester United penalty that was given at Aston Villa was quite oh, obviously blatantly wrong. And they stuck with the referee's decision. So, um, you know, I... I think they need to look at it. I think they need to make sure that they bring a bit more consistency to it. It was probably never going to be perfect first time out. That's fair. I would like to see a change on the offside um, rules. I, like the, the game that sticks out is the, the Norwich game against Spurs around Christmas time when Norwich had a goal disallowed because someone's little finger was, was offside. And I just, you know, I, that that feels to me to be taking taking the law too far um that was my biggest problem with it the the, the offside the, the the application of the offside rule i think i think um jurgen klopp's suggestion was to make the lines thicker for the attacking yeah. team because the attacking team is supposed to get the benefit of the doubt um yeah but i mean it, and I, I agree with jurgen klopp i think that would help but we do have to be a little bit careful and i was i was pro technology in football and i think it's right that it's there but Equally, Dan, we do have to li- be a little bit careful when we start talking on a football podcast about the thickness of lines, because that's not really the purpose of the game. Well, well, <laughs> um, well this is it, isn't it? I, I think that, to me, suggests that the implementation of offside is wrong. If you're spending four or five minutes, and it, it has happened, the, yeah, the yeah. one that stands in my mind, it didn't matter in the end, was Roberto Firmino being offside at Villa. You know, like, it, we're talking... VAR wasn't brought in, in my opinion, shouldn't it wasn't or shouldn't have been brought in to determine whether or not someone's fingernail is offside. It is to cut out clear and obvious errors. If some if some someone is marginally offside because of their fingernail, that's not the kind of goal I want disallowing, unless it's against yeah. Liverpool. But that's a whole different kettle of fish. It- if what we're doing is is having to get sort of four or five lines out coming from different angles, that probably suggests that it isn't a clear and obvious error. Exactly. Um, you know, I think I think they do need to look at that. I'm not quite sure what UEFA are kind of driving out with this idea that decisions won't be shown on big screens within grounds. Um, that seems to me to be a a mistake um, because I think, you know, it's hard enough already when you're in the grounds to kind of follow what's going on. If they're not even going to allow you to show, show them back afterwards, I just, you know, it's, it's not necessarily designed for the match going fine. I get that. It's designed for the people who are watching on TV at the moment. That's not a problem because there are no match going fans. Um, But in the longer term, yeah, I, I think I think it's right that they stick with it. I think it's right that they try and refine it over the next two or three seasons. And it may take that long to get it perfect. And we'll just have to live with it in the meantime. Um, But equally, they've got to try and develop the rules in a way that takes the match-going fan into account. And four or five-minute delays to see whether um, Pookie's fingernail was offside or whether, you know, Firmino's hair was offside is not really... Um, adding to the the drama and the enjoyment of a game of football, and I think it did affect. And the, the concern that people had about you almost don't celebrate a goal for three or four seconds because you think is there anything there where it could be disallowed? Um, you know, I, I I think there's something there as well that that they just need to think about. Um, 
it's it's tricky. I don't think it's going anywhere. I think it's staying. Football's too big a business now to you know leave it all to the determination of a, a of one man in the middle of the field. And um, we just have to hope that they get better at applying things a bit more consistently as we go forward. Yeah, it's not going to be perfect first time round. It does have complaints and criticisms. Um, I, I, I like you. I, I'm in favour of of technology to help referees because it's not an easy job. Um, but of course, when you have the referees, the same referees who make mistakes on the pitch, they're going to make the same mistakes in Stockley Park. Um, and so, so it has proven to be. I, I mean, I can't remember the game recently where um, they had to issue an apology. I, th- I, I, I can't remember what it was. They issued an apology because a VAR decision wasn't correct. Um, and we, we've seen that a few times this season. Yeah, and that's you know that's no. I mean, it happened. It happened actually to Arsenal early on in the season. Um, uh, it was one of the decisions we drew at home to Crystal Palace, and I can't remember whether it was the Palace penalty or maybe we had a goal disallowed right at the end that would have won us the game three two. And I think it was that one that eventually the um, the VAR people said should have stood, uh, but that doesn't really help them. You know, again. Not saying it would have been enough to keep Unai Emery in a job, but but there are people's livelihoods that are on the line here. Um, I don't think it's particularly helpful for them coming out sort of six and seven days later and saying, "Whoops, sorry, we got that one wrong." Yeah, um, if it if it helps, though, um, they've had less heat on them since the restart since Hawkeye than Hawkeye. Um, yeah, that that was the one where. I mean that that all, the talk of Bournemouth's legal action seems to have, have died down a little bit now, but Hawkeye's worked flawlessly for years. Yeah, and and that's obviously you know there was a technical glitch somewhere in the system, and and it was really unfortunate that there's you know ultimately that point may well have relegated Bournemouth, but I, I think at the same time that system, the goal line technology system, has generally worked perfectly, and. Um, you know, it, hopefully that was the exception that proves the rule. Yeah, well, I, I think we can um, point the blame at the Villa goalkeeper. Um, it takes him being so bad <laughs> for um, for that to happen. Nyland, he's that bad. He broke Hawkeye. Yeah, they didn't have a lot of luck this season with with goalkeepers. Aston Villa, obviously, um, they signed Tom Heaton, who's a, a really good goalkeeper, and and he got injured. And uh, yeah, it was a bit of a sort of mess after that with with Nyland and Rayner. Yeah, um, Rayner was finished five years ago. So, um, but all, all's well that ends well for Villa. Ultimately, um, I think, mate, we've we've pretty much covered the Premier League season there. Uh, if we quickly. Go to the um, the EFL. I know, I know you've got a lot of love for the EFL. You've got a, a, a very soft spot for crew. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think the problem this this year has been the extraordinary failure of the EFL to make sure that the right owners are in charge of football clubs. We've had Bolton, Berry, who unfortunately uh, didn't didn't survive, and, and Wigan. Off the top of my head. Um, yeah, the the Wigan situation is particularly concerning, Dan, because it, you know uh, to, to allow a guy to buy a club and then pretty much immediately just put them in administration, just something clearly <coughs> hasn't worked there in the in the sort of due diligence process that's supposed to happen. Um, you know, it, it's really concerning for for those clubs. It's heartbreaking for the fans of Bury who you know have lost a long-standing football league club. 
great little club, lovely little ground. I've been to Gig Lane a number of times. Um, it's a great shame for them. It's a great shame for uh, their fans. And, and yeah, you know, when, when we look at the likes of Bolton and Wigan, we're talking about teams who were in the Premier League not that long ago. Um, and I know that in itself might be part of the reason and there's, there will be questions about teams overspending in the Premier League and then not being able to cut their cloth accordingly when they when they drop out. But it, it, it does feel as though there's there's got to be better scrutiny. And I, I, I'm not yet sold, to be honest, that the sort of EFL's financial fair play rules where if a team overspends with money they don't have, you punish them by fining them. <laughs> that seems to me to not be a great system. Um, so I, I think there's, you know, there is still a way to go. I, I am really concerned, Dan, as I mentioned at the start about when we restart the season in League One and League Two, how on earth do those teams pay their players when no one's coming through the gate? Um, I, I don't think we're yet through the through the worst of what COVID is going to throw financially at the at the lower reaches of the game. Um, and I think the next two, three, four seasons are going to be really, really challenging. I'm not suggesting we're going to not have fans for that long, but just that the after effects of, of this period will will have some pretty wide-reaching impacts on those clubs for, for two or three or four years to come. Um, in terms of the... Uh, the seasons themselves, you know, we've already referred to, to Leeds getting back into the Premier League, to Coventry getting back into the Championship. Um, as you say, I, you know, I was a cruise season ticket holder for it for a year as a as a, a teenager, and I have a real soft spot for Crew. Um, they got promoted back into League One. I'm not absolutely convinced we'd have held on to an automatic promotion spot if the season finished so um we may have got uh we may have got a little bit lucky there although we were top of the league actually and and it was points per game that meant we ended up second um when the season was concluded so uh yeah the it, the the big challenge for the football league clubs and i think those clubs in league one and league two will be thinking more about how do we keep the club in business in the next 12 months even before they start to think about how do we try and keep the team winning on the pitch. that That's the thing, isn't it? it, it this goes beyond this yeah. season. I, I don't see how we don't have a disruption um, of the season to come as well. Um, well. Well, we've already seen, you know, and I know there were some isolated incidents with players behaving in a way that, you know, was clearly quite ridiculous but but we've seen the problems in Scotland already um, with the Celtic player with the players from Aberdeen games needing to be cancelled I think that's going to be something that we we experience when when the football league restarts and uh, yeah it's it's going to be really really challenging for for a number of those clubs I think um, you know we can talk talk more another time about about which clubs I think are, are, are well placed to to push for promotion in, in League One and League Two. But I think, um, as I say, the main aim for every single club at that level is going to be how do we make sure we've still got a football club to run in, in two years' time? Yeah. It's, I uh, mean, it, it always is. It always is, frankly. But COVID just really is going to bring that into a much sharper focus. Yeah. Um, it, anyone who's not been living within the means is going to be found out very soon. And I, I, I don't mean that as a ha ha ha. I just mean that that's a cold hard fact. Unfortunately, um, COVID is going to push home financial issues. Um, I mean, in an ideal world, we'll we'll get. Is it, is it October the first where um, 
they're going to start to try and get fans back into the grounds. Yeah, I think that's the government's current plan is is the start of October for fans returning. Now, at the lower at League One, League Two levels, you would hope, and again, I don't mean this in a way to be disparaging to anybody who goes and supports those clubs every week, it may be easier to socially distance when you're not talking about fully capacity, full capacity stadiums in the first place. You know, I don't know how often clubs in League One and League Two sell out, but it's it's certainly pretty rare. Um, it may be cup games against some of the bigger clubs, but uh, it's more important at that level that we that we try and get fans back in the stadium. And if that means the Premier League and and the Championship to an extent have to wait their turn, um, then so be it. Because I think the priority is those clubs for whom that income is absolutely essential to the lifeblood of the football club have to be the priority for getting fans back into the grounds. Yeah, I, I think that's um, that's that's very true, mate. Yeah, certainly I would be willing to to wait another an extra month to to go to Anfield again. And I, I miss it. I really do. I really miss going to Anfield. I miss going to St. Helens to watch the rugby, which has had all the similar kinds of problems. Um, but the most important thing is that clubs exist at the end of this all, all, all of this, and um, anything that can be done to help. You know, we we should all do our bit. Um, right, I think we've, we've as best we can cover um, the the football season we've just had. Then uh, I think we've done a good job, mate. We've not really mentioned Bayern, who were, were, were worthy champions, I thought, of Europe, and um, Sevilla, Sevilla winning an incredible record again. Um, is that six out of 14 they've now won? Yeah, they seem to win it every year. I think we should just... If we need competitions to abandon for next season to fit all the games in, let's not bother with the Europa League. <laughs> let's just let's just all accept now that Sevilla won it. And, um, and we can move on with the other competitions. No, I, it's an incredible achievement from them. I think terrific from Bayern. You know, the turnaround since, since Hansi, Hansi Flick took over is incredible. Um and just a couple of years ago, when you looked at the Bayern team and there was Robin and Ribéry and um, Mandzukic, you looked at them and thought, oh, they need a bit of a refresh and to have rebuilt so quickly uh, into the into the side that, that's just won the Champions League is is a real testament to them and to the way they've, they've run the club. I do feel a little bit for PSG because I think... Um, I think they did make progress in Europe this year, not just reaching the final, but I think generally learning a little bit more what it takes to play in those big knockout games. Um, their time will come. You know, you can't be throwing that much money at it and and have, you know, arguably the two best sort of youngish players in, in world football. I'm not quite sure how old Neymar is now, but, but Mbappe is certainly still a, a really young guy in his football career. Um, th- their, their time will come. Um, but but yeah, I thought I thought Bayern were worthy winners. I didn't think it was the greatest final, as they often aren't. I suppose I thought it was sloppy for an hour. Um, both teams gave the ball away more than I'm, I'm used to seeing them. Um, but once Bayern scored, I thought they they really showed some authority and they managed the game pretty well after that. And uh, yeah, we're, we're deserving winners. Yeah, uh, and of course the thing for Bayern is they've got Leroy Sané to come. Um, that moves us up me on nicely to my outro. Um, we will be back. We'll be doing a preview of the next season, which uh, is scheduled to start on the 12th of September. 
Um, I've also got having some guests coming up to come and speak to us about um, a few bits and pieces. Uh, my next guest will be Dave Usher from the Liverpool. I can't, can't speak properly. I'm that excited. Uh, my next guest will be Dave Usher from the Liverpool Way Fanzine. Um, Dave will be having a, a chat with us about the the new season for Liverpool. Um, he'll probably be a lot more optimistic than I am, but I can't change my nature. Paul, it's been a pleasure. We, 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 we certainly won't be leaving it eight years until the next um, next episode. No, speak to you soon, Dan. Yeah, thank you very much for your time, mate. Thank you all for listening. And we'd love for you to subscribe to our channel. And I wish you all the best. And we will speak to you very soon.